welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 21, the Nova Scotia Breakthrough. It was early July in the summer of 1840. And it was time for Charles Thompson, Le Poulet, Governor General of British North America, to take a trip down east. It was a good summer for Thompson. He had pushed through the Union of the Canadas, which was going to be made official later that summer, and he was about to receive his big reward, to be made Lord or Baron Sydenham. Thompson sailed up the St. Lawrence that July, the warm summer air pushing the memories of a Canadian winter out of his mind, no doubt feeling pretty satisfied with all that he had so far achieved, if perhaps a little annoyed at the reason for his trip. The reason, of course, was that Colin Campbell, governor of Nova Scotia, couldn't get his house in order, literally his house of assembly. And so London invited Sydenham to step in and save the day. When Thompson arrived in early July in Halifax, all of the main political actors rushed to greet him. Thompson held a flurry of meetings with the necessary figures, with Governor Campbell, of course, and then also members of the council, the executive, and prominent figures in the assembly, including Joseph Howe. And everyone, at least initially, thought that Thompson was really on their side. Thompson himself already, of course, had his own solution. And the solution was to replicate his own success in the Canadas to create the Sydenham system for Nova Scotia. If you recall, the Sydenham system sought to bring all of the main moderate players into the government, to create a big government of moderates, to give the leading assemblymen their due, but also to retain the power of the governor. And what made it all work was to have a governor acting essentially as a kind of prime minister. Who couldn't be happy with that? Well, in Nova Scotia, there was one person who definitely didn't like it, and that was Governor Campbell. Campbell had already been temporarily usurped so that Thompson could come in and take charge of his government while he did his investigation. And then, with only a couple of weeks' experience under his belt, here was Thompson suggesting that he knew just what to fix. The irony is that Campbell found himself in the exact situation that Joseph Howe had written about to Lord John Russell, imagining someone like Howe coming to Liverpool and, with no local knowledge, just taking over government. Well, Charles Thompson was doing the same thing to Campbell, and it didn't feel too good. Campbell also didn't like what Thompson proposed, reconfiguring the executive so that it could speak for and control the House of Assembly. The Sydenham system didn't go as far as allowing responsible government or party government, but it did go partway toward this goal. The main figures in the executive were also to sit in the assembly, which at present only some did. And the executive was also meant to represent a broad coalition of moderate interests. The worst part for Campbell was who Thompson insisted needed to sit on the executive, Joseph Howe. Governor Campbell was having none of it. He flat out refused to head an executive with that man. And the worst part for Campbell was that he was about to discover it didn't matter. Whether he liked it or not, Joseph Howe was coming. 
Joseph Howe met with Thompson and decided to go along with the scheme, even though on the newly formed executive, he would be, for the moment, the only real reformer, at least as he saw it. The executive did include other men Howe respected, especially the Tory James Uniacki, who had sided with Howe the last year, resigning in protest and telling Campbell that the executive needed to better represent the assembly. But Howe seems to have gone along with the whole scheme, even though it wasn't a full-on responsible government, because he thought it was much better than the alternative. And most importantly, the Sydenham system might break up the clique of families who had controlled the council for so long. Better to have a governor as prime minister whom you could influence, rather than a small oligarchic clique of interests on the council whom you couldn't. And so, how was in? And this meant, because of his obstinacy, that Governor Campbell was out. Thompson wrote to England, recommending that Campbell be removed to allow the new scheme to work. And that's what happened. London ordered that Campbell be replaced by a new governor to arrive later in the autumn. The whole executive would be reconfigured, and Charles Thompson could continue on with his summer vacation. Off he went to Prince Edward Island and then New Brunswick. All in all, a job well done. As for poor Colin Campbell, well, he was somewhat mollified when London offered him the governorship of Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, that is. But his departure became such a political hotspot that when his ship departed the Halifax Harbour, only a few hundred locals gathered to see him off, in contrast to the usual fanfare. Joseph Howe magnanimously tried to keep up the illusion that Campbell had just been led astray by bad advisors. But it was just a show. It now remained to be seen whether the Sydenham system would work any better in Nova Scotia than it had in the Canadas, where, remember, it lasted about one sitting of the legislature. Well, we'll see. We're going to be moving in fast forward this week, or partly anyway. We've been lingering each episode over a few years at a time, and this is I think often the best way to really get to know a place at a time. But this week we're going to cover eight years in quick succession. We'll stop down at particularly vital moments in this move towards parliamentary responsible government. And you know, it's not like we're going to go all Yuval Noah Harari and do the whole history of the human species in 400 pages like that historian does in his great book of Humanity Sapiens. Uh, and there is a place for that, and that is an excellent book, by the way. But we'll stick to our slightly speeded up, but still relatively snail-like eight years over 30 minutes pace. By the end of this time, by 1848, we'll see how events turn out in Nova Scotia and we can turn back to the Canadas to see how very much differently it all worked out in that more tumultuous colony. The man the British government hoped would swoop in and rescue Nova Scotia had some fairly impressive royal connections. Lucius Bentick Carey, otherwise known as Lord Falkland, held two baronetcies, one from England and one from Scotland, as well as the grand title of Lord of the Bedchamber. And yes, you should definitely now linger on that title, Lord of the Bedchamber, and make whatever joke you find most appropriate. But for our purposes, it essentially meant London was taking the crisis in Nova Scotia seriously by appointing him. 
Lord Falkland was also married to Amelia Fitzclarence, which is a story unto itself. Fitzclarence, or Lady Falkland if you will, was the illegitimate daughter of King William IV. For more than 20 years, William had shacked up unmarried with the Irish actress popularly known as Mrs. Jordan. The whole thing was mildly scandalous. This was when William was Duke of Clarence and not at all supposed to inherit the throne, being the brother of George III and the uncle of George IV. But when George IV, that heavy-drinking obese monstrosity of a monarch, died without a legitimate heir, it turned out his uncle was going to be called into duty, after all. And so he became William IV. All of William's children with Mrs. Jordan had taken the name Fitzclarence, and although William had split with their mother earlier to go looking for a rich heiress to get him out of debt, he still took care of the children and they all married well, including Amelia to Lord Falkland, who now came to Nova Scotia. Incidentally, Lady Falkland later published a memoir of her life traveling with her husband to the reaches of the British Empire, but somehow her time in Nova Scotia didn't make the cut, and the book was just about India, Egypt, and Syria. I guess Nova Scotia didn't count as sufficiently exotic. At any rate, Falkland arrived in Nova Scotia in 1840, when Campbell departed and immediately set about putting in place Lord Sydenham's plan. That is, to build a kind of coalition government with himself at the head, giving positions to a broad range of people from the assembly, granting the assemblyman power, but still retaining his own position as a kind of prime minister. The whole thing seemed at the time to be working in the Canada, so why not try it in Nova Scotia? Once the new executive was in place, the governor called for new elections in Nova Scotia, but the results were pretty much unchanged from before. The ratio of reformers to Tories remained about the same with roughly 30 reformers in the assembly to 20 Tories. The assembly voted in Joseph Howe to serve as speaker, beating out James Uniacki. And Howe somehow managed to sit both on the executive and as speaker, which caused no end of controversy and trouble for him, even among some of his reformer friends. The new coalition executive managed to get along together, sort of, for a few years. Howe and Governor Falkland liked each other, and that helped. Howe gave up, at least for now, the editorship of his paper, The Nova Scotian, which took away his constant opportunity to wittily berate his political opponents in print. Lord Falkland appointed another reformer to the executive, but still, some reformers refused to believe that this really was a coalition that was worthwhile. Where was the actual responsible government, they asked? Other local Tories were equally displeased, and the victory of Robert Peel's Conservatives in the United Kingdom only emboldened them. They attacked Howe and the reformers in person and in print, and Howe couldn't help but respond in anonymous letters published in his old paper. He was supposed to be staying above the fray, but it was really was so hard to get along with the enemies within. The final slight, at least as Howe and others saw it, came in 1843. Lord Falkland appointed a Tory, Mather Alman, to sit on the executive. Now, Alman was the brother-in-law of the lead Tory on the executive already, William Johnston. And Howe, as well as now Uniaki, 
and another reformer knew that this would essentially skew the executive votes in favor of the Tories. They had had enough, and late in December 1843, they resigned in protest. They would not sit in a coalition government anymore. They wanted an executive that reflected their control of the assembly, that truly represented that body, which, of course, represented the people. And if you're keeping track of how the events in Nova Scotia parallel events in the Canada's, you might notice that this is December 1843, right about the exact time that Lafontaine and Baldwin themselves resigned in protest against Governor Metcalf and what they saw as his interference in political patronage. So at least at this moment, the two colonies are tracking along nicely beside each other. In Nova Scotia, this is when things got dirty. Everyone had been playing nicely for a couple of years, pretending to try out this whole coalition Sydenham system business. But then, over a single appointment, it all fell apart. The knives came out. Falkland and Howe had previously got along well, but that was soon to end. Lord Falkland kept trying to rebuild his coalition government, to remake the Sydenham system, but he soon found out that only Tories were willing to sit on the executive. So, in this sense, the situation was even worse than in the Canadas. At least in the Canadas, Metcalf had managed to find a few prominent French Canadians, Vigée and Papineau, the brother of that other Papineau, to head up his government. But in Nova Scotia, Falkland was left with only Tories. Joseph Howe took over the Nova Scotia newspaper again and then also started up a cheap weekly penny press and the partisan invective took over. Falkland insisted in trying to rebuild the coalition that he would accept reformers, but he absolutely refused to bring in Joseph Howe. And this was actually the final act that turned James Uniacke into a proper reformer. Remember, Uniacke had been a Tory but one who slowly had turned himself over to the idea of responsible government. He'd resigned from the executive now twice over the issue. And when it became known that Falkland would absolutely not accept Howe onto the executive, Uniaki thought Falkland had gone too far. If the governor could, he wrote, with impunity proscribe one man because he dislikes his politics, he may exclude another because he's not pleased with the contour of his features or because he is not mixed in fashionable circles. Where would it end, Uniaki wondered. This was the reformer equivalent of a first they came for the socialists, then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out. It was a Hitler reference before Hitler. By the mid-1840s, then, events were at a standstill in Nova Scotia, and, if I might speak a, a bit grandly, in the British Empire. Groups of reformers had been pushing for greater colonial autonomy within the empire, demanding the kind of British parliamentary government enjoyed at home, but in the colonies. It was a logical and powerful argument, steeped not in republicanism or anti-British feeling, but in British tradition itself. And yet, arrayed against these reformers was the British government, a long list of colonial governors, and Importantly for us to remember, quite a significant number of colonials themselves. And this last bit is easy to forget. We usually tell the story as 
the birth of Canadian parliamentary democracy, of Canadian sovereignty in a sense. And yet that's not how all locals understood it at the time. In Nova Scotia in the mid-1840s, the reformers often held the advantage, but not always. And when Nova Scotians went to the polls in 1843, they returned a slim majority of Tories to sit in the assembly. Politics in in these years was like politics at any time. Responsible government was nowhere near the only issue. Noishkosans were divided by, amongst other things, religion, and Joseph Howe and the reformers tended to get the support of Catholics, but Tories could count on the support of Anglicans, and especially in the mid-1840s also of the Baptists. The Baptists were angry that Howe and other reformers had opted to support a single non-denominational college for the whole colony instead of separate denominational colleges, and especially the one founded by Baptists, what became Acadia University at Wilfville. Just as importantly, some Nova Scotians didn't side with Howe and the reformers for more principled reasons. And perhaps no one put it better than Lord Falkland himself. In opening the sitting of the legislature in early 1844, Falkland noted that he had been under pressure to govern with a single-party executive. But this he would continue to refuse, he vowed. A council composed of members of one party alone, he warned, quote, would expose the lieutenant governor to the great danger of being made an instrument of oppression to some portion of the community for the aggrandizement of others. And the governor's job, he maintained, must always be to promote the general welfare without preference or distinction. It's a powerful and logical argument. And even as we go on and celebrate, as I think we should, the creation of a responsible government, it's worth lingering over the fact that the opposition wasn't, as is often represented, merely a collection of nepotistic rogues. But the fact is that Lord Falkland and those holding out against responsible government were fighting a rearguard battle. And nothing made this clearer than events in Britain itself. Here I'm talking about something that seemingly had nothing to do with democracy, but which ended up having quite an impact nonetheless. I'm talking about the growth of laissez-faire liberalism and the idea of free trade. In the 1840s, the British opted to dismantle one of the main economic edifices that had supported its empire, colonial preference, largely because they no longer felt that they needed it. Colonial preference is just a broad term for a whole group of British laws that linked the empire together economically, making it more likely that Britain would get, for example, its timber or ships or wheat from its own empire and making foreign goods that much more expensive. The idea was an old one rooted in the idea of a self-sufficient and self-sustaining mercantilist system where you wanted to keep profits and goods within an imperial economic system. There had long been good economic and strategic arguments in favor of this kind of protectionism. Don't rely on the French to sell you wheat because you're likely to go to war with them and then when you need it, you won't have the wheat. Of course, it was more extensive than wheat. Nova Scotia merchants operated a whole system of trade of taking goods from British North America and the United States down to the British West Indies in exchange for sugar and rum. 
New Brunswick timber merchants traded vast supplies of timber to Britain to supply the navy. Back in the Napoleonic Wars, France had indeed tried to seal off trade to Britain and starve it of timber for its navy, so it made sense to ensure intra-imperial, that is, colonial, sources of goods. Now, this is just one example of a larger economic network of imperial preferences. But the thing was, by the 1840s, Britain had become the most prosperous and powerful country on the globe, and a large number of its commercial and urban elite began to think that they did not need these imperial preferences any longer. Indeed, that Britain was hurt by the whole system. The preferences made goods more expensive, even for the poorest British consumer. Liberal free trade could supply the motherland with all its needed goods. And because British merchants were so powerful and British industrialists so far ahead of the game, they could take advantage of free trade to enrich themselves and the empire. Now, British opinion was still divided on exactly what to do. But the breaking point came with the election of Robert Peel's Conservatives in 1841. Conservatives had historically tended to support imperial preferences, but not so Peel. It was his 1842 budget that truly began the process of dismantling free trade. This was the first step in a decade-long process of similar changes. Now, Usually this is summed up as the end of the Corn Laws. The Corn Laws significantly taxed foreign grains coming into the United Kingdom, and they were meant to bolster home farmers. But they also, of course, made food more expensive. In reality, the move to free trade meant modifying or eliminating many laws, including things like the Navigation Acts, which had given preferences to British and colonial ships entering British ports. By the end of the 1840s, much of the system of imperial preference had been dismantled, and colonial traders were left to fend for themselves. Now, I'm not writing an economic history here, we're not talking about economic history in great detail, and so while we could delve into how complex the effects of this are and were, the main reason we bring it up now is because this economic move had such a significant impact on colonial politics and on the battle over responsible government. In essence, the situation could be put like this. Britain was removing perhaps the most significant benefit of being part of the empire. This was an almost literal example of the motherland cutting the apron strings and saying, go on now, shoo. In fact, some of the most ardent supporters of free trade in England also argued that the empire was just an expensive waste of resources. What should Britain really get from its colonies except for expense and foreign entanglements? better to simply trade with the world and control countries economically. Now, that was a somewhat extreme position, but the direction of change was clear. There were still ties of sentiment and, of course, political administration, but the decision to increasingly rely less exclusively on the colonies economically and to let them fend for themselves in foreign trade was obviously going to have an impact on the whole issue about just how much or how little control the British government now expected to wield within the colony's domestic government. It was bound, that means, to affect the fight over responsible government.
The man who would ultimately oversee what all of this meant in British North America was John Harvey. If you haven't heard of him, don't be surprised. Lord Elgin, the Governor General stationed in the Canadas, tends to get all the fame. And when we turn to him over the next two weeks, you'll see why. Elgin was the one to face the stones and the insults. Yet Harvey deserves to be known for, if nothing else, how good he was at his job. Born the son of an obscure Anglican clergyman, he had risen through the ranks of the British military in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars. And he hadn't been one of Wellington's officers, so he had to overcome that obstacle. He rose, not by position, wealth, or birth, but through personal bravery and, eventually, by showing that he was a rather efficient administrator. He first came to North America serving with distinction in the War of 1812. In one conflict, the Battle of Stony Creek, he personally turned the tide by leading a nighttime raid, capturing an American general and forcing an American army to retreat. After the war, when all kinds of former officers were looking for civilian advancement, he managed to eco a career in various civil positions until his first big break in 1836 when he was made governor of Prince Edward Island. He performed admirably there and went on to be governor in New Brunswick and then Newfoundland before finally coming as governor to Nova Scotia in August of 1846. So yeah, all four maritime colonies. I'm not going to get into the details of all this history, but the short version is that in each position, Harvey showed an impressive ability to not snootily look down on the colonials he was supposedly governing, to get people to focus on what they had in common, and to modestly and with great care try to move his governments and the assemblies to solve their problems. And this is likely why he seemed like a good option to bring to Nova Scotia in 1846. Back in London, Peel's conservative government fell in large part over internal dissension about its free trade policies, actually. But this brought the Whigs back to power. The Whigs opted to move out Lord Falkland, who by this point was linked quite closely with the Nova Scotian Tories in what had become a bitter and acrimonious political maelstrom. The divisions between the factions had hardened to such an extent that political parties essentially existed, and the idea of trying to govern along the lines of a Sydenham-style coalition something the Brits still very much wanted, was looking almost impossible to achieve. So maybe good old reliable Harvey could make it happen. Maybe. At just this point though, British thinking on colonial self-government, on the whole issue of responsible government, just changed. Just like that. Like flicking on a switch, all of a sudden it became thinkable that maybe colonies in British North America could enjoy the same kind of parliamentary government as in England. The irony here is that the new Whig Prime Minister, under whose guidance the policy came into effect, was none other than Lord John Russell, the same man who back at the end of the 1830s had insisted that responsible government in a colony would be tantamount to separation from the mother country. This was the Russell to whom Joseph Howe had addressed those famous letters on responsible government. Now in fairness to Russell, events had been moving along slowly throughout the decade and the switch, especially toward free trade, now made the whole switch to responsible government seem more feasible. 
And how did this dramatic change take place? How was this incredible turnaround realized? Well, in a couple of diplomatic dispatches, of course. That is Canadian history for you. Resolutions and more resolutions, and then throw in the diplomatic dispatches. There's nothing like the drama of a good old conversation by letter that takes months for either side to know what the other has said. After Harvey arrived in Nova Scotia at the end of the summer in 1846, he set about to try to conciliate the conflicts in the colony. He tried to bring some reformers into his government and create a new shared coalition government again. But despite Harvey's good people skills, he found he just couldn't do it. The Tories refused to sit on an executive with Joseph Howe, and Howe himself and the reformers wanted the whole thing to be settled by an election. And after that election, Howe hoped that if the reformers won a majority of seats, that Harvey would then invite the reformers onto the executive as a party government. And this is what, essentially, the Brits were increasingly willing to concede. The major concession came in a dispatch from the then colonial secretary Earl Grey to John Harvey in Nova Scotia in November of 1846. And by the way, no, it's not the Earl Grey of the Grey Cup. That's the fourth Earl Grey who served as Canada's Governor General in the early 1900s. We're talking here about the third Earl Grey, and not also the second Earl Grey, after whom the tea is named. So yeah, it's uh, hard to keep these guys straight. But anyways, at any rate, Grey wrote to Harvey to set out what he thought should be the principles of governing in the colony. He admitted that he didn't himself know all of the local particulars, but he nonetheless thought that a few broad strokes would be of help. And were they ever. Gray's letter to Harvey amounted to a tidal wave reversal of British policy. Gray told Harvey that all of the public policy in the colony, and any decision made by the governor, needed to be in line with the wishes of the majority of the colony's inhabitants. If public opinion was clear on an issue, and if a majority of the representatives of the people urged one thing, it wouldn't do to go against it. And specifically, Gray referred to the legislative and executive councils. Harvey wasn't supposed to just listen to this small coterie of officials and an elite and do what they wanted. The assembly was to lead. What's more, Gray wrote that the government should change hands. The executive should change, that is in response to public opinion. So if Harvey's current executive didn't have the confidence of the assembly, then Harvey was, just like in England, to turn to the leader of the other major group in the assembly and see if they had the confidence of the assembly. And then, if they desired, there could be an election to decide who really did enjoy the people's support. The central principle was this, quote, it is neither possible nor desirable to carry on the government of any of the British provinces in North America in opposition to the opinion of the inhabitants." End quote. And there it was, in a nice little dispatch. There were plenty of details to work out, a lot of debate to be had about how the whole thing should work in practice, but that was responsible government. Gray then sent another dispatch a few months later to clarify a few points especially this whole issue of patronage. That is, just how many government positions should change every time a government switches. 
Gray pointed out that if Joseph Howe and his allies really did want a government just like in the motherland, then they couldn't go and adopt the American spoils system of patronage where every position, no matter how humble, switched hands after elections. Gray was keen to limit the positions that changed hands just to those mostly tied to public policy. But as we'll see, this would continue to be a debated point. The key thing was that by early 1847, the British government had essentially agreed to concede responsible government in British North America. As it was, Joseph Howe and the reformers kept to reasonably good behavior all through the legislative session in 1847 because they could look forward to, later that year, an election like none other. An election which, if they won, would bring them what they had been fighting for for years. The 1847 election was like none before. And not just because it led to the inauguration of responsible government, though it did that. The previous government had, just before the election, passed the Simultaneous Polling Act, which meant that for the first time all of the colony's electors would go to the polls on the same day. And what's more, they would go to many more polling stations in each riding. It made the old practice of amassing your forces and beating back your opponents from the polling station much more difficult. The parties spent vast sums of money widely canvassing individual voters, a practice which had previously been looked down upon. But now that party differences were hardening, the old gentlemanly claims to be above the fray were too. Of course, not everything was above board. There were still plenty of treats. An election was the equivalent of rival weddings, each with its own open bar meant to attract supporters to its party and then vote, well, for that party. By the autumn of 1847, even the idea of responsible government had largely been settled as the Conservatives agreed that whichever party controlled a majority in the Assembly should control the government. But the parties still fought over just how much should change with the Tories accusing the reformers of being selfish, partisan hacks who wanted just to capture the spoils of office for themselves. And then there was religion. Catholics, and especially Irish Catholics, largely supported reformers at this time. And the Tories ran on a campaign of fear that a win by reform would lead to a Catholic ascendancy. This was a huge issue at this time, and would be throughout the 1850s. A lot of this had to do with the backlash from the Irish famine migration, which I promise we'll get to next week. My main point here, though, is to point out that although this election led to responsible government, there were plenty of other issues involved, and plenty of reasons on either side for supporters to claim their own moral high ground. When the polls closed, and the drunken voters woke up from their post-election hangover, they found that Joseph Howe and the reformers had won the election. In the next assembly, they would control 29 seats compared to the Tories' 22. And so, that was that. Right? Well, not quite. You see, the Tory leader in the assembly and on the executive refused to resign. And this was, it needs to be said, well within his rights. 
he wanted to wait until the assembly met and let it decide who enjoyed its confidence. Governor Harvey, always hoping to conciliate, tried the old Sydenham tactic of trying to form a coalition government. You know, hey guys, uh, why can't we all get along and form a government of the best from each party? But neither party was having it. And so it was that after a few months of failed negotiations and stalling, that in early 1848, the assembly finally met and delivered its verdict. Joseph Howe put forward his colleague, William Young, to be speaker, and they won that vote. Not only that, the reformers then insisted that they get new reformers as sergeant-at-arms and assistant sergeant-at-arms. And then the big vote came. James Uniacki, the former Tory who had been won over to the idea of responsible government, who had become a reformer, made a motion of no confidence in the government. The motion passed with everyone voting on strict party lines. And that was that. Responsible government at last. Now, obviously there was a lot more involved. The Tories and the governor himself kept negotiating on what it all meant, on how many posts would need filling, on who would resign and how they would be compensated. But the basic gist of the change was there. Though there was one last little insult for Joseph Howe, for it was James Uniacki who became the first premier of Nova Scotia in a responsible government, not Joseph Howe. It was a strange moment, but it turned out that by this point, Joseph Howe had become just too divisive a figure. But Howe took it in stride. His day would come. For now, he was pleased that the system of government he had been calling for ever since he entered politics was now the system of the land. Way back in the year of rebellion, 1837, when he put forward his 12 resolutions, he had asked for responsible government. And now he, and Nova Scotia, had it. Thanks so much for listening to 1867 and all that. We're now, for the moment, done with Nova Scotia. It was a fun three-episode stint and hopefully goes some way to convincing you that the down-at-home man of the world, Joseph Howe, as happy swigging back a drink in an outport as he was reciting poetry and constitutional history, deserves a fair bit of our attention. If you've enjoyed the series, please do leave a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Drop me a line via the website, www.1867allthat.com. I really love hearing from listeners. Next week, we're back in the Canadas. They have a new governor, Lord Elgin, and Baldwin and LaFontaine are itching to see how these new dispatches from Earl Grey and the new British approach to self-government applies to them. Here's a hint. It's not going to proceed nearly as smoothly as in Nova Scotia. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures with the generous financial support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>